Live from the Burt Park, USA, I'm Tavis Smiley, and you're listening to KBLA Talk 1580. So glad to see you and me back in stride again. Our phone number, 1-800-920-1580, 1-800-920-1580. All of our socials can be found at KBLA 1580. That's Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube, everything at KBLA 1580. Uh, let me also invite you right now to download our app at KBLA 1580. Download the app. And take us with you anywhere in the world and listen to us in real time. But only if you download the app right now at KBLA 1580. Should you miss us any day in real time, check out the podcast of this program by going to the app, the website, Anchor, Spotify, Apple, so many places to get the podcast and listen at your leisure. Should you miss us any day in real time, but I am delighted to have you along live with us today for the next three hours. You can also watch the live stream of this program by tapping on the KBLA TV icon on our app or by going to our YouTube channel. Let me also invite you to follow me on Facebook and Instagram at The Real Tavis Smiley and get Twitter updates at Tavis Smiley. Another great show on tap for you today in our second hour, acclaimed journalist and human rights advocate Goldie Taylor on her new book, The Love You Save, a memoir. The book takes a deep dive into the strictures of race, class, and gender in a post-Jim Crow America. In our third hour, the motivator Les Brown continues his month-long radio residency. You've got to be hungry. So far, Les has covered the themes, it's possible, it's necessary, it's you, it's hard, yesterday, it's worth it, and today, it's over. That's Les Brown uh, in our third hour today, continuing his month-long radio residency exclusively on KBLA Talk 1580. <clears throat> but in this first hour today, two more conversations on the B side of this hour in light of what happened to Tyree Nichols Memphis, uh, in Memphis weeks ago. We explore with prominent public intellectual Dr. Lewis Gordon how racist power structures can permeate the minds of black folk to act against their own people and against their own interest. What's that about? We'll unpack it with Dr. Lewis Gordon on the B side of this hour. We begin today's conversation, though, with best-selling author and longtime columnist Ellis Coase about a piece he wrote for the Los Angeles Times yesterday entitled Black History Month is a century-old relic, one we still desperately need. I am delighted in Black History Month to welcome Ellis Coase back to this program. Ellis, how are you, my friend? I'm very good, Tavis, and as always, great to be with you, and uh, happy Black History Month to you. Same to you, my friend, and good to be in dialogue with you. I was fascinated by your piece in the L.A. Times yesterday. Let me start where your piece starts, uh, giving you the platform to tell the story of uh, of your daughter, who was, what, eight or nine at the time, who came to you and asked you what? Well, she asked me, uh, why did black people have a special month. <laughs> Daddy, why do black folk have a special month? And how did Daddy answer that question? Well, I responded um, basically by giving her a little lecture, you know, on the transatlantic slave trade, on, on Jim Crow, uh, and on the effort of Carter Woodson, you know, to promote what was then called Black History Week. And she, you know, she calmly listened to all of that. Um, and then she responded with, Okay, so, well, when the bad men were kidnapping people from Africa and turning them into slaves, was the president black? Mm. And uh, I, I had to laugh at that. But, but I also, <laughs> you, know, I, you know, putting it into context, I realized that in her young life, the only president she had really known was Barack Obama. And she, and she had seen me, you know, 
go out on the campaign trail from time to time doing his um, uh, his first race. And and when I would come home, you know, she would say, "Okay, Daddy, so who's winning? Is Hillary Clinton winning, or or is Barack Obama winning?" Yeah. You know, so from from her perspective, the idea of a black man being president, or for that matter, a woman being president, was not controversial. Yeah, and, and she was just trying to get her head around this idea of how would a black president allow Africans to be taken as slaves in America. And I thought it was funny, but also profound. Mm. Let me pivot ever so gently. We'll come back to your piece, because when you're when I read the piece, the first thing that came to my mind um, to your daughter's question, uh, or, or certainly her wrestling with this notion of how a black president could have allowed that to happen to black people, two things come to mind. Let me just tee both of them up, and when we come right. forward, we'll jump right into them. You probably know where I'm going. The first one that comes to mind is this notion of black nihilism, um, the things that black folk do to other black people. Uh, we'll talk about that when we come sure. forward. Uh, but, but it also raises the question about the transatlantic slave uh, trade and those Africans who wittingly sold other Africans into slavery, uh, something that we don't like to talk about in Black History Month or beyond. We'll jump into both of those things and more when we come forward with Ellis Coase on KBLA Talk 1580. Do, in fact, continue our conversation with Ellis Coase, who had a powerful piece yesterday in the L.A. Times. The piece uh, was entitled Black History Month is a Century-Old Relic, one we still desperately need. Before we get into unpacking why we still desperately need Black History Month in the mind of Ella Coase, um, to the issue we were discussing a moment ago, or, or teeing up at least, um, I, I suspect you probably didn't get into this with your daughter at the age of eight or nine. Perhaps you did. Um, but uh, now that she's a grown woman, I'm sure she understands this uh, quite well. But this notion that we often, right. that we often run away from, Ellis, um, that there were, in fact, Africans who wittingly sold other Africans into slavery. Your, your, your thoughts on that, and I'm, and I'm asking that again because she was trying to figure out if the president had been black, how a black president could have allowed this to happen. The president wasn't black at that time, but there were black Africans who were involved in this. Your thoughts? Oh, absolutely. And I think, and I think a couple of things, just to put it in context. Um, we're talking about the 1600s, mm-hmm. you know, and back then, the concept of racism, as we know about it now, was just in the process of being invented. You know, and the Africans who sold to other Africans did not see themselves so much as selling, as, selling, as selling other black folks. They saw themselves as selling enemies or undesirables, and it was just business for them. Mm-hmm. I think that, you know, since then, we have developed this whole concept of racism in a way that it never existed before. And it happened, it happened gradually in this country. I mean, I, I, I sometimes cite a couple of laws which sort of illustrate the evolution of this. But in, in 1669, for instance, the colony of Virginia made it legal to sell, uh, rather, rather to kill black who were resisting their, quote, owners. Yeah. Um, in 1723, Virginia went even further and made it perfectly fine to kill uh, blacks uh, in the process of correcting their behavior. Uh, we had a choice to make in this country. We had a choice when when the first uh, Africans came um, on the ships in 1619. Uh, it's not clear exactly what status they all had. It, lo- it looked like some uh, were awarded the status of indentured servants, which is the same way they treated whites at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, we made a decision over the next 30, 40 years to enslave 
blacks and we and we did that because it was easier to enslave blacks than it was whites for several reasons that I can go into if you want to. Uh and in order to make that work we had to also invent this concept of racism. You know, uh and, and so and so we began with this idea, um I guess again, going back to the sixteen hundreds, that, that that one, um, these blacks are property and two, it's okay to kill them, um for resisting. Um, and and then we you know fast forward a few hundred years to why is it that so many black men um, are killed resisting supposedly arrest? Mm. And you really realize that this concept was put into our collective national bloodstream a long time ago, and it and and it evolved you know over centuries. I mean, it, it all the way until the 1970s. Um, there were sundown towns, you know, where basically black folks had to be out of these towns um, by the time the sun went down. And they weren't all in the South. They were, they were throughout the country, including in Cicero, Illinois was one. Um, we've had a lot of time getting accustomed to this notion that black men are brutes who need to be treated in a certain way. Um, and that idea is not only held by many white Americans, it's also held by many black Americans. And so to this day, uh, when we ask why are black and brown men uh, disproportionately the object of police brutality, is a complex reality. But part of the answer is this history. Mm. It's a powerful history. Uh, I'm, I'm still stuck on the phrase you used a moment ago. I wrote it down. Uh, our national bloodstream. I've never quite thought of it that way. Uh, but that's why I love talking to Ellis Coase. Um, he makes me think. And um, this uh, notion of racism uh, indeed was introduced uh, into our national bloodstream. And to this day, we have not as yet found an antidote for it. I digress on that point. Um, but what you were teeing up at the end of your comment, uh, Ellis, was this notion of black nihilism. I'm watching my clock here. I want to get back to your piece specifically in a second here. Um, but to your mind, given all that you've just laid out, how is it that uh, black folk, although black nihilism is as real as rain, how is it that you think we have, for the most part, successfully resisted the pull to be nihilistic about our experience and our existence here in this country? Oh, I think because we've had a lot of examples to the contrary, and I think we are, we are as a people are as idealistic as any set of people, and we want to see the best in ourselves and want to see the best uh, in our country. I mean, when when Carter Woodson uh, started um, Negro History Week back in 1926, mm-hmm. his whole idea was that you know, we needed uh, to know our history, um, and that we needed to know our history first of all. So that black folks could understand uh, what we had overcome, what we were capable of, and secondly, so that the whole nation could understand uh, who and what we were, as opposed to this crazy stereotype that had been developed essentially to justify enslavement. Mm-hmm. What would you then argue is, uh, and I'm teeing this up because you talked about it, of course, in your piece yesterday. For those who saw it, they know why I'm asking this. Um, but, uh, what would you then argue in 2023 is the primary reason why we still need this old relic known as Black History Month? Um, I think I was, I would cite two things. Mm-hmm. One is, I, I think that the rationale, um, that Woodson articulated 
1926 still obtains. I mean, we still need to understand our history. We still need to understand, in order to make sense of the American history, we need to understand what happened to the to African Americans within this history. But also, something new has has come into play, uh, which is this whole anti-black history movement mm-hmm. that, is, that has come over from the reactionary right. And this idea that if you teach the truth of black history, uh, then self-hating white kids will be damaged. Uh, and that, therefore, you should you know, whitewash all of history to protect fragile uh, white children. Um, it's nonsense on, on, on many levels, you know, um, and, and, but it's epitomized, you know, by what's happening in Florida, of course, uh, where, you know, they, they've come out of against the AP Black History. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they also passed a so-called, you know, anti-woke law, uh, as they call it, uh, which was uh, partly struck down or, or, or at least stayed by a federal judge, you know, who, who, who said quite bluntly that you are muzzling professors and others uh, in the guise of freedom. It just makes no sense. Um, but I think to counteract this nonsense, um, this, this anti-black history movement, um, it's very useful to have a Black History Month that gives you a reason. I mean, I, mean, I, I myself had a, an event canceled in Florida. Um, because the university that was hosting all of a sudden got very concerned that politicians would get upset with something that I might say. Mm. <laughs> and, and so, uh, you know, and, and so they canceled that event. Now, it'd be interesting. Uh, we'll be going back in the floor. We'll be going back in the Florida in a couple of months and see, and see if that, if that issue is still alive at the universities we'll be talking to then. But this, but this is a very harmful and poisonous thing, you know, and it's basically we have a, uh, you know, a movement to enforce ignorance, um, a political movement to enforce ignorance. And, and, I, and I point out, Tabitha, this also is not something that's really new. It's just, it's just, a, it's just a, a different evolution of it. I mean, if you go back to the early 1930s, one of the things, that uh, Carter Woodson um, railed against and actually wrote an article in the Chicago Defender about was the practice of, of certain southern school districts to fire black folks, black teachers, who taught the Constitution. Mm. Because, yeah, because they were afraid if uh, black folks learned about their rights under the Constitution, they might get ideas in their head and do things that white folks didn't like. You know, so, so, so we're seeing a, a modern version of this, and the modern version of this is this so-called anti-woke movement, where, which they claim is against um, critical race theory, which, honestly, they don't even know, they don't even know what that is. Mm-hmm. You know, it's really, you know, it's, it's, it's really against the teaching of the history of black America, and specifically against the history of many of the harmful acts um, that uh, were perpetrated on people who happened to be black uh, in the attempt to enforce the power structure's um, creation of slavery. Yeah. You said a couple of things I want to uh, interrogate just a second here. First, a comment. I said on this program uh, the other day, Ellis, um, as you were talking about uh-huh. Ron DeSantis in Florida and this Stop Woke Act, um, that, to use your words, harmful and poisonous, it is harmful and poisonous, but it's also scary. 
Uh, it's really scary. You, you, you detail now quite beautifully that this is nothing new. And I think it was the wise man Solomon who said there's nothing new under the sun. So it is nothing new, as you said. But at the same time, you have school districts now in the state of Florida. So you've got colleges canceling lectures like yours because college administrators are scared that Ellis Coast might say something that would get them in trouble. Let's be clear, Ellis Coast ain't Louis Farrakhan, and they're scared of Ellis Coast coming to Florida to give give a speech. Uh, And I love Ellis Coast, but that tells you something, number one. But there are school districts now in Florida that are literally advising teachers to hide certain books. Not just to teach, sure. not just to teach from them, not not just to not teach from them, but to hide the text. Um, they are so scared um, that they may, may be subjected to being arrested, to being jailed for having certain books in the classroom. Given that these books have been banned, say nothing of actually teaching from those texts. That's how dangerous things are in Florida. That administrators are telling teachers to hide certain books. That reminds me of you know what. Uh, and this is how this stuff all begins, right? So it's it's not just harmful and poisonous. It really is. It's scary uh, when you consider around the world. Let me just go ahead and go there. Hitler in Germany. This is how this stuff starts. And every time you invoke the name oh, sure. Hitler, people get scared. But this is how this starts. And I think that we can't just poo-poo or just ignore what DeSantis is doing in Florida, given what history teaches us about what the next step is. Because when this stuff starts to happen, as you well know, the first thing that gets sacrificed, Ellis, is the truth. Am I right? Oh, you're absolutely right. And and, and, and also, I think it's important that we acknowledge that as bad as what DeSantis is doing is not just DeSantis. Mm-hmm. Uh, UCLA keeps a, an ongoing tally. Uh, and last time I looked at it, uh, there were 183 different measures, and I'm sorry, uh, 521 different measures you know, that have been proposed um, to um, basically infringe on, on the teaching of what they call critical race theory. Uh, and these were proposed by 183 different bodies, whether they were st- it were state bodies, city bodies, or other bodies. Yeah. Uh, so, so, so the epicenter, in a way, is Florida. Um, but this is a movement that's affecting states across the country. Yeah. Um, and the result is that, uh, I mean, as you know, I mean, the, the, the uh, teaching of Beloved became an issue in a governor's race sure. because of, the whole, of this whole idea that um, Beloved, which is, which is inspired by a true story, um, might um, traumatize white kids mm. let me, to read about this. Let, let, me, let me ask you, and, and that story. I'm sorry, go ahead. Mm-hmm. I'm finished finish your point. And that story, I'm sorry, and that story. And that, and that story, quite simply, is based on a young woman uh, who was named uh, Margaret Garner, who sure. was enslaved in Kentucky uh, and fled to Ohio in 1856. Uh, and rather, and then, and then, of course, the the um, Fugitive Slave Act was passed in 1850, which required northern states to return these people who had escaped. Uh, so she was, you know, being ap- apprehended and was going to be taken back to Kentucky. Yeah. And rather than allow her two-year-old daughter to grow up, you know, in slavery, she slit the young girl's throat. Yeah. Um, and this was the story that inspired Toni Morrison um, to write Beloved. Mm-hmm. Nope, no uh, no question about it. It was, a, it was a tough story, but she wrote it uh, brilliantly. And the late, great Jonathan Demme, who won the Academy Award uh, for Silence of the Lambs as director 
uh, directed, of course, that that brilliant film that many found tough to watch. But I would just say it was it was necessary. I'm looking at my clock here. I got about two minutes to go before news, traffic and sports. I'm going to lose you. But let me ask you this question. Speaking of black babies, what do you make? Speaking of our national bloodstream, I'm going to hold on to your term all day today. Our national bloodstream. <laughs> what, what do you make of the fact that we are so concerned, apparently, about the fragility of white kids but I can't ever imagine a moment in this country where there was such an uproar and such outrage about the status of black children. It, it never has been. And, and that goes back to our national stereotype. I mean, why do black kids get disciplined so much more than white kids? Because we have a, a sense that they are tougher in some way, that they, are that, that they don't require care. Uh, that if anything, uh, they require discipline. And so we have a whole different way of looking at it. And since we don't have very much time, to have, let me just just mention quickly, uh, I am going to be in California later this month. Uh, on the February the 23rd, I'll be at UC Santa Barbara. And February 28th, I'll be at UCLA uh, talking about these issues. Mm-hmm. Nope, I was going to get there. I'm glad you beat me to it. <laughs> I, wouldn't, I wouldn't close without, uh, without promoting your dates. Um, but let me, just, let me close by saying this. Speaking of children, I'm, I'm glad that your daughter at eight years of, uh, eight years of age asked you that question. Uh, and I'm glad that it was still on your mind all these years later. It's a beautiful piece yesterday in the L.A. Times. If you did not see it. Uh, go to the Los Angeles Times, look up the piece that Ellis wrote yesterday. The title is Black History Month is a century-old relic, one we still desperately need. We sort of uh, uh, top-lined uh, what you're going to get when you read his piece. But it's fascinating, uh, the history he laid out about uh, Carter G. Woodson. We talked a bit about that in this conversation, but there's a great deal more in the piece. I highly recommend his piece. In L.A. Times yesterday, Black History Month is is a century-old relic, one we still desperately need. I likely won't catch you in Santa Barbara, Ellis, but I'll catch you when you come to UCLA. All the best to you. Thanks for coming on, my friend. Uh, thank you so much, Sal. It's always great spending some time with you. The pleasure is all mine. When we come forward, what is it that makes black people uh, act against other black people and against their own interest? Um, we saw what happened to Tyree Nichols at the hand of these black cops in Memphis, but what, what gets into our mind, what permeates our mind that allows us to behave or misbehave, as it were, in those ways? Dr. Lewis Gordon will unpack that for us when we come forward after news, traffic, and sports on KBLA Talk 1580.